welcome to the podcast. We've got fresh content from some of the brightest minds in the Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto space. With feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that make it so incredibly easy to keep to the pulse of what's happening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and even hit the share button to send to someone you know who would love to know about this totally free podcast. Huge thanks to our main sponsor, UnoCoin, who are not only India's leading crypto assets blockchain company, but also the reason why this podcast is available to you completely free of charge. With that said, let's jump into one of the Blockchain Impact Conference talks that took place in Toronto, Canada on December 8th, 2017. Enjoy. Okay, great. How's your brain feeling? I assume you've been bombarded with lots and lots of new information today. Does it all make sense? Kind of, sort of, ish? getting some nods and some people shaking their head now. All right, so as we get started, I'll talk more about the enterprise side of things, which is going to be a slightly different area of focus, I suspect, from the other conversations you've heard so far today. So if we could just do a quick show of hands to help me understand who's in the audience, and I can make sure to tailor the discussion appropriately for you. So how many of you work at large companies, if I could get you to raise your hands? Okay, uh, financial services? Public sector? Supply chain? Any regulators? <laughs> no regulators. You'd be surprised by how engaged they are. I'm actually speaking to a room full of regulators next week at the Canadian Federation of Regulators event where I have a captive audience of all 28 different regulatory agencies ranging from food safety to border patrol and they're all very interested in learning more about the blockchain topic. Okay, do we have any startups in the room? Any cryptocurrency startups? All right, a gamble. Oh, hello there. <laughs> Great. So in terms of my introduction to the blockchain space, I have a bit of an odd story. I'm actually a chartered accountant by training. And you might ask what on earth a chartered accountant is doing up on stage talking to you about Bitcoin and blockchain and what this means for the enterprise. But I actually stumbled into this industry back in the 2012 era. So I've seen the progression of the ecosystem. And as somebody who's coming into the space either for the first time or is fairly recent to the blockchain space, I often hear confusion as people say, help me think about blockchain because the ecosystem can be a little bit overwhelming. You've heard from startups pitching their products. Some of them are building enterprise blockchain platforms. Some of them are building proprietary software. Others are open source projects. You'll hear about initiatives such as consortiums being built in financial services, you have R3. In the insurance world, you have B3I. You have consortiums forming around technology companies. You have research institutes such as the Blockchain Research Institute led by Don Tapscott. There's CollideRx, the nonprofit R&D hub that I founded after leaving Deloitte. And then you have the entire world of cryptocurrency startups that are building wallets, that are building exchanges, that are simplifying the ability for the retail investor to become a part of the overall blockchain ecosystem. And depending on how you've stumbled into this world and which of the many pathways you've taken, you might start to get confused between all of the different stories that you're hearing and the platforms that say they have the best thing since sliced bread, the platform with the highest transaction throughput, the platform with the best security and the best privacy mechanisms. So it can be a little bit hard to cut through the clutter. 
What I want to do today, over the course of the next half an hour we have together, is walk you through the way I think of the blockchain space, which really falls into one of two categories. On the one hand, you have the cryptocurrency, you have Bitcoin, altcoins, ICOs, consumer-facing applications, where the conversation and the question of what's the price of Bitcoin today is the most relevant. And then on the other side, you have the enterprise world, which is where I spend about 95% of my time while also uh, paying attention to what's happening in the open source world. And in the enterprise community, we're starting to see interest from across all industries in figuring out how they can use the underlying distributed ledger technology that was first inspired by Bitcoin, inspired by Ethereum, for which now we have a number of other blockchain platforms, and understanding what the impact to their business model is and how they can go from an idea all the way through to ideation. My talk will be broken into three main pieces. The first one is a brief discussion as to where we are today in an ecosystem. You can't open the newspaper without hearing some mention of this technology. So perhaps it's safe to say that we are nearing the peak of inflated expectations per the Gardner hype cycle. Shortly after, I want to talk about some of the areas of use cases where we're seeing the most interest from the general community and ending it off with how to make it real. Because at the end of the day, the reason you're here is to learn. And you probably wear a couple of different hats. I know I do. You have your hat as an individual, potentially as an investor. You have your corporate day job and trying to understand how you can go back and apply this in your nine to five. And you're also thinking about yourselves and your careers and what skills you need in order to be successful and to be able to tap into one of the fastest growing technology areas, arguably, of all time. On the slide behind me, and I don't know how clearly you can see it in the back of the room, so feel free to wave your hand if it's too blurry. What I've posted there is the Gartner hype cycle, where every year they post their projections and mapping of where certain technologies are in the adoption curve. According to their estimates, they think that we've already hit the peak of inflated expectations for blockchain, and that now we're just entering into the trough of disillusionment. However, this chart dates back to July of 2017. That's before the price of Bitcoin went from $10,000 to $20,000 in less than a month, and before the Wall Street Journal had two articles about blockchain in their, their daily session. So I would actually argue that we are not in the trough of disillusionment and we haven't even hit the peak of inflated expectations. But what's important from this chart is to recognize that technologies are at different levels of maturity. And based on their estimates, they're not projecting that we will have products that are using blockchain technology in production until five to 10 years from now. Based on my experience, and this is literally what I live, breathe, and dream about, I think that that prediction is a little bit too far out. Uh, I've seen projects that are very quickly moving from proof of concept into pilot and slowly starting to tip from pilot into production readiness. Is anything truly production ready? That can be argued one of two ways. When you think about it realistically, Bitcoin wasn't introduced until 2008, 2009. The prospect of telling your CIO or your CTO that you're going to use a technology and you're going to put all of your mission-critical data on a system that's been around for less than 10 years, you might get locked out of the room. And although Bitcoin as a network is very secure, the Ethereum open source protocol is very secure, 
those are not the types of technologies that you're likely going to come across in your enterprise journey. And most of those enterprise platforms did not exist previous to 2015. That I would know. I was part of the team at Deloitte that built the Rubik's by Deloitte blockchain platform, which is now Nuco. So I'm essentially teeing up the presentation for Matt Spoke. I don't know if he's in the room yet, but he's one of your presenters later on this afternoon. So he'll speak to you about the work that him and the team are doing at Nuco, as well as at Amazon. So some of the use cases that we're seeing being explored. I asked at the beginning who we had in the room and which industries they came from. Some of those industries are the, the ones where I spend the majority of my time really helping our clients. Financial services, let's start there. Back in 2014, when I was involved in having conversations with all the major Canadian banks and some of the international banks, they all took the meetings. But they took the meeting under one condition, anonymity. Because no bank wanted to be the first one to hit the front page of the Globe and Mail as being so-and-so is exploring blockchain, it was far too risky. And those meetings were always with the head of compliance and regulation because those were the business units that were most impacted right up front by the introduction and the rise in cryptocurrencies. And the reaction at the time was, the space is still small, it's still a drop in the bucket, we would like to take a wait and see approach as this industry matures and then figure out what the impact to us would be. As we've seen more and more adoption and the introduction of companies creating international remittance tools, uh, whether it's Paycase, Abra, Unocoin, which is a company that Sunny runs, or a number of others, all of a sudden it's no longer a tiny tranche niche player that the financial institutions can afford to completely turn a blind eye to. And so it didn't take long for the established entities to start paying attention to their business models and ask the question of what can we learn? What are the lessons learned from Bitcoin and the underlying ledger? Can we take this notion of a distributed database that's replicated, that is secure, that could we use it for our own businesses to make our businesses more efficient so that we're not relying on the traditional approach of I have my information in a silo database, maybe it's SAP. You have your information in an Oracle database and your business partners. You deal with each other all the time. You trust each other to a certain extent. But ask yourself this question. Do you trust your business partners enough that you would open up your SAP database instance and say, here you go, dear supplier or customer. You have full read and write access to my database. Try that on Monday, and let's see how long it takes for someone to suggest that you might need to be escorted out of the building. Because the reality is that in the business enterprise, although there is a certain level of trust, it's not so much so that we are willing to give up all of our banking and financial and transactional information across industries. So in the financial services world, specifically in banking, one of the very first use cases that was explored in the enterprise is that of worldwide international remittances. So when you hear mentions of Ripple and their XRP currency, what that means really is that Ripple has created an alternative network to Bitcoin specifically designed for usage with the banks to do an integration so that when they do their foreign transactions, it's done in a much more efficient manner without the legacy infrastructure that we've currently inherited via the likes of SWIFT. And in case you're wondering what SWIFT stands for, I recently Googled it um, to be surprised that the organization has been around since 1970, 
um, something, and it stands for the Society of Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. That last word really threw me for a loop, but once again, it, the framework that we use today for our banking world was created in the 1970s. Think about the changes in technology that we've experienced from then until today. Not all of the use cases that we're seeing out in the ecosystem are financial. Yes, the banks were the first ones to recognize that this had a direct correlation to their business. But insurance companies have also began to experiment, mostly with smart contract functionality, to understand whether they can shorten the claims processing life cycle to go from you've missed your plane or your flight has been delayed or canceled to the time that you submit a claim, to the time that your claim is reviewed, processed, and paid, which might be two months, all the way through to being able to in near real time. And in fact, there is a startup based out of Europe that has done just that and partnering with a large European insurance company. Outside of financial services, we're seeing a lot of traction in the supply chain world. Think about the life cycle that products take to end up on a plate in this lunchroom or the luxury goods that you might purchase as a special treat over the holiday season and the provenance. Products move through the manufacturing life cycle, the distribution world, to the retail environments. All of that includes the transfer and back and forth of information, includes rooms of people working on reconciliations. Not exactly the most um, engaging activity that we could potentially be working on. And with supply chain also comes the financing component. Who pays for the products that you're getting manufactured in the Asia Pacific region and getting imported into North America? The process, if you are a buyer or a seller, can be quite lengthy with complicated lines of credit, paperwork, extensive fees, and the inability to receive payment for the products that you may have shipped for a month or for up to 45 days. So those are some of the industries where we're seeing a lot of traction, particularly when it comes to food safety, given that it's a very regulated industry and certainly not one that you want to not pay attention to, given that it has some very profound consequences. Some of the other industries that are on here might surprise you because on there we have the government pillar. And I know there was no one in this room who identified as, be, as being someone who works for a government agency, but you'd be surprised by the traction that we're seeing there. But I'm not. And the reason being is that in the public sector, the motivations that they have to pursue innovation that might result, yes, in a change to the way their current processes and systems work, but if you can do something better, faster, cheaper in your government agency, you should be able to relay all of those benefits to the taxpayer. And ultimately, that's an important consideration. So don't be surprised if you start to see more projects with governments exploring identification that's digital, governments exploring digital business registries. In fact, there's a project, which is in the public domain that we were involved with, that included the federal government of, uh, of Canada, the province of Ontario, and the city of Toronto doing business registrations. So if you wanted to open up a restaurant, what are all the steps that you have to go through? And who are all of the actors to whom you have to submit information and wait until you get a stamp on a piece of paper to then take this piece of paper, walk it across the street, give it to another agency, and prove to that agency that you didn't just counterfeit the results that came from another group. So
So the government applications are quite interesting as well. Essentially, anywhere where you have the transfer of value or the transfer of information and where there could be a benefit to going away from a centralized or siloed system to a system where you can share information with the appropriate business counterparties, with the appropriate safety and controls in place, but for a business benefit. We've had a very theoretical discussion up until now, but I want to help, it, help you realize that this is beyond pure theory, and we are seeing some real-life implementations out in the world. The Toronto Stock Exchange, TMX, recently did a project um, this spring with Accenture to update the proxy voting process. Many of you in this room, I would imagine, are shareholders in companies, public companies. And at the end of the year, you get invited to vote um, in various AGM-related matters. And there have been a number of very public cases where the number of people who showed up to cast the vote was greater than the number of outstanding shares. And so you wonder, somewhere in this process of the brokers and the dealers and the transfer agents, something somewhere didn't add up. And that mistake was not identified until the very end of that process life cycle. So that's an, uh, one of the prototypes that they have been working on using blockchain technology. You also recognize that the Bank of Canada is listed on the slide. The bank was one of the first large um, institutions in the world to start paying attention to the impact of cryptocurrencies, to ask questions as to whether or not we could have a Canadian government-backed um, cryptocurrency coin. They recently announced the extension of Project Jasper. We've seen similar projects underway in Singapore. The Monetary Authority of Singapore recently completed a project also, you can go and find the report. It's quite lengthy and detailed online uh, with Accenture. And we built a prototype for real-time gross settlements on three different blockchain platforms, Corda, Quorum, and Hyperledger Fabric. Some of these names might mean something to you, but maybe they don't. Uh, these are all alternative blockchain platforms that exist in the enterprise space, specifically designed to meet the functional and technical requirements of what an enterprise might use it for when they find that using a pro protocol such as Ethereum or the Bitcoin blockchain may not be the, the right fit for, for their needs. And as a result of working on this project, we have a lot more insight as to how these platforms operate in certain constrained environments and to be able to recommend to future clients which platforms would work under which considerations. You'll also see on there the likes of regulators. We have the DTCC, who's looking at a blockchain for potential efficiencies. The Ontario Securities Commission, since we're here in Toronto, they launched the Launchpad initiative, which is essentially a sandbox-esque environment designed to incentivize startups to approach the OSC in a preemptive manner to tell them what they're looking at building so that they don't end up in legal hot water after the fact, which is an interesting approach for regulators to take who are currently figuring out how to strike that very fine balance between encouraging innovation, protecting the investing public, and also doing good from an economic development standpoint for the country in which they, uh, they operate. But how do you get from an idea or from the theoretical application of blockchain to an actual proof of concept or pilot, or something that you can touch, something that you can 
process can be fairly complex. On the slide behind you, I've tried to simplify it, very, very simplified, into three key components. Every blockchain conversation needs to start with the business model. What do you currently do? And how could that process flow look in the future? One of the pieces of guidance that I would like to offer to this audience is to caution you against the very tempting approach of blockchainifying an existing business process. So what do I mean by that? Um, in our experience, we've seen quite a number of clients come to us and say that the business process they want to update is ABCD. And you ask them for more details and you go back and forth with the emails and the conversations and you get to this point where you question whether or not they actually need a blockchain. And you ask the question, do you really need a blockchain for this? And they say, well, aren't you supposed to be selling me blockchain? The answer is, well, no, not really, because if you go build this product the way that you've envisioned it, and then you take it to your board of directors seeking additional funding for subsequent projects, and if there's anyone on your board of directors that understands how blockchain works, and they ask you, so why did you use blockchain technology for this rather than a traditional database or even GASP, a distributed database? Those have been around for a number of years. If they don't have the answer for them, they look silly. I look silly. We're never going to get a chance to work together again. So don't be afraid of ending up at the conclusion of deciding that no, perhaps you don't need blockchain. Because my goal is that in a couple of years, I won't be here on stage talking to you about blockchain. Blockchain will be just one little square. So if you look at that slide, it'll be on the bottom right-hand side of a company's overall technology stack, alongside Internet of Things, alongside machine learning and AI. And all of this will be done with the aim of supporting the business vision and the goal. And so we've designed a Nifty flowchart that we help uh, to bring into client sessions to help them think through whether or not they do in fact need a use case. And sometimes a company will realize that there are 10 or 15 different possibilities of areas that they could explore. And from there they need to simplify and streamline those into two, maybe three meaningful uh, projects that they can undertake. But then they're faced with the question of, well, what blockchain platform do I use? And you'll recall the very first line in the presentation that had quite a, a number of startups in, in the picture. So one of the things we've done is to streamline the analysis of all of the different blockchain platforms and vendors out there and start to compare them on a number of defined qualitative and quantitative metrics as well. So if you're thinking about how to approach this conversation of blockchain with your teams and your leadership teams when you head into the office on Monday. It's important to set expectations. And remember, this technology is very new. It requires experimentation. We are, by some estimates, in 1994. Other estimates peg us as being in the 1980s still when it comes to adoption of the internet. It's impossible to predict the new business models that will be unlocked by the startups that are currently funded with ICOs and that have no constraints about the business model that they can or cannot undertake. So it's important that as enterprises, we spend time looking at what's happening in those startup communities and identifying whether there are lessons learned that could be applied in our organizations. And the approach we would suggest is that of rapid experimentation and identifying the set of hypotheses testing the hypotheses, and getting to a point where you're learning more by doing. Otherwise, there is always the potential of finding yourself on the 
umpteenth book or video talk on the subject and realizing that you're even more confused than when you began. But if you are looking for interesting talks, highly recommend the Andreas Antonopoulos YouTube series. Uh, never a dull moment when you're, when you're watching that. So a couple of key takeaways when we think about the concluding thoughts. Blockchain is a network. In the same way that a phone isn't particularly useful to you, if you can't pick up the phone and call someone, a blockchain network for yourself and your own organization is likely to yield very limited value. Rather, what we're seeing is a move towards consortiums and towards building networks of companies that already interface with each other in the traditional status quo world that might all be participants in this new, more decentralized manner. And don't be afraid of the experimentation and the ability to pivot quickly. It's difficult to predict where the world is going to be in the future, but one of my favorite quotes is that instead of predicting the future, you should be involved in building the, the future. So with that, I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to open it up to any questions around your own respective journeys and how you're thinking of approaching the, the blockchain industry. I'd be surprised if there were no questions in a room like this. So the question is really around open source and enterprise, and that dynamic has a lot of different facets. Some of our clients will say, yes, we want to use blockchain, but we also have a requirement based on our legal teams that we cannot use any open source code. Well, that becomes very limiting because inherently most of these platforms are inherently open source. Uh, when it comes to Ethereum, when 
comes to the Bitcoin protocol, those have to be open source and completely accessible, otherwise they wouldn't work. That's entirely by design. You do see a generation of enterprise blockchain platforms that has emerged. They use different licensing terms that are more amenable to enterprises. Some have an open source component as well as a proprietary layer on top of it if they've built an entire blockchain stack from the bottom up. Others will take a blockchain stack that exists, they'll modify it, often called forking, and they'll modify it for their own purposes. When it comes to the business models in the open source community, and I like your mention of the, the Linux model, the Linux Foundation is actively involved with the blockchain space via their connection to the Hyperledger Foundation. So the Hyperledger Foundation is essentially an incubator of sorts for a number of blockchain projects, um, including Hyperledger Fabric, Hyperledger uh, Sawtooth Lake, Iroha, and a couple of other projects. And the idea there is that these open source projects require support to get them from all of the, the paperwork and the necessary due diligence all the way through to being used. We are going to see more companies coming out who have the Red Hat model that are based on open source technologies. So we are seeing a shift across the board when it comes to who's monetizing what and how are they monetizing. Just because it's open source doesn't mean that there's no uh, commercialization opportunities. But to give you another example, uh, between after leaving Deloitte and before joining Accenture, I launched CollideRx. It's an open source research and development hub. And we focus on collecting research topics from the crowd. So your organization, this person's organization, and that gentleman's organization, assuming you're all enterprises or startups, your tech teams probably have a two research list of 20 items. And items number 15 through 20, you're never going to get to. Because getting to that research might require you to hire five or 10 PhD students in pure math, distributed systems, and computer science, and then putting them on payroll for the next three years. For most organizations, there's no business case to do that. But if you have a model where you're pooling resources, you are sharing the output of that research in an open source manner, you're all of a sudden able to align the interests of multiple participants without resulting in a closed loop consortium with various IP challenges and so on and so forth. So that's just one example of the types of business models that we're seeing arising. I do see Sunny as my handler here, suggesting that I'm probably out of time. Do we have time for one more question? Or Okay, one more question. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend you think would appreciate the send. Up next, more talks from past conferences. Thanks for listening.